Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. And today is Monday, July 5th, and we gather this next hour around the gift of the inspired and true Word of God, and the Holy Spirit helps us put on our Christ goggles as we study 2 Kings chapter 23. Josiah has taken over. They found the book of the law, which is a fascinating part of the story in chapter 22. On Friday, Pastor Jason Bredesen and I had a great conversation of what this means for us today. And it also applies as we look at chapter 23, as Josiah continues to do faithful um, practices. He points people back to the Lord, and, and that's important for us. How can we be pointed back to the Lord? How can we point people back to the Lord in joy and also in trial? As we look at these words today, is important for them, and it's also important for us. So the gifts are ready, ready for you. We thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for their support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. Helping us to be strengthened by God's Word, we welcome our first time, Pastor Tim Sandino, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Gorham, Maine. Pastor Sandino, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thanks for having me, and it's my pleasure. Pastor Sandino, this is our first time together in Thy Strong Word, and I regret to tell you that you are actually our second guest from the state of Maine. Um, we had a pastor who's retired that now lives in Maine. However, uh, you are our first called and active pastor from the state of Maine. So congratulations on that. How about that? Well, that's good. I know the other pastor as well. So, <laughs> that's good. so hey, tell us about yourself, uh, your family, and the work of the saints at Redeemer. Um, so I've been here at Redeemer. It'll be eight years this August. Um, prior to that, I was a mission planter in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, that was my first call, if you will. Um, technically the second, because the mother congregation called me from the seminary. Mm. I'm a, a second career man, uh, entered the seminary in my mid thirties. And, um, my wife and, uh, Lisa and myself, uh, we've been married for 26 years and we have three adult children. Um, our oldest actually lives in Minnesota, a ways south of you, yes. and uh, works as an ER nurse there in Rochester. Okay. And uh, our son uh, spent a few years in the Marine Corps and is back in Maine, um, where he's uh, gone to school and is beginning his work with uh, HVAC and electrical. And uh, we have a, a younger daughter that uh, lives here in Maine as well, and she works in the hospitality industry. So tell us about Redeemer and. Oh, sorry, you had more Yeah, kids. so Redeemer. I did, did I miss no, one of your kids? No, that's it for the children. Tell us about the no. church. Yeah, so, well, Redeemer uh, was established in 1962, back when there wasn't a New England district. It was part of the Atlantic district back then. And uh, in Cape Elizabeth, it's actually started in South Portland, which is, you know, there's this large population. Most of Maine lives in the southern two counties. And so Portland, being the largest city in Maine, was the, a logical place to start a congregation. They moved from Cape Elizabeth in 2004 to try to move more central in the, in the southern part of Maine to make it easier for their members to get to the church itself. And, um, and that's the location where we are now when I came in 2013. Um, and if, it's difficult to picture this, but there's a saying in Maine is you can't get there from here. Because none, there's no grid. You live in the Midwest where all the cities are built on grids. Everything here was built around creeks and cow paths, and, and they just the roads wind and turn and everything else. And so there's no direct path to get anywhere. So it does make it difficult. So our membership in Maine, uh, I just kind of did a geographic thing the other day, and it's about two-thirds the size of Connecticut just for our congregation. Um, and that's the area in which we live right now. And so it, it is a tremendous geographical space. And one of the ways that, that we have begun reaching out is we started a preaching station 45 minutes south, but well within what you would call our parish. And um, that's been going for about two and a half years. And we're exploring a, an SMP pastor right now and the possibility of um, establishing another preaching station towards the north. And so it's an exciting time to be uh a member of God's church and the opportunity of sharing the gospel with 
many people that don't just not know about it, but in some ways have never actually heard the gospel. And, um, and it's nice to see it light up their eyes and their hearts. That is so great. And a reminder to our listeners about how God's word, and this is really what thy strong word is all about, is to hear, uh, to, to see how God's word works in people's hearts. Cause it becomes so easy to kind of look around and say, no, nah, nothing's working. I mean, this isn't working. You know, th- this isn't happening. We need to fix this, fix that. When, as you've said it, and we've talked uh, previously to the show, is just the reality that we preach and the Holy Spirit um, um, does his work and the church grows. Maybe not in the way that we wish, not in the way that we would want it or predict it, but it works in God's time and his place. And so that's why we, we give thanks for your ministry and the, and, the, and the work of the pastors and churches in New England. Like, like you said, it's not necessarily a real church area, but God's word still works in the midst of those trials. So anything else you want to highlight before we move on? No, but uh, so I'd I'd never put a lot of focus on second Kings 23 before. Um, but I would describe it a lot like Maine. And, uh, and so we're going to see how God's word enlightens uh, Josiah and, and, um, the high priest. And thus there is a reform that does go on. And, uh, and I think we can actually see that happening in our world today when, when God's word is forefront or in the, uh, the forefront. Well, may the Lord lead us on that. And speaking of, can you begin us in prayer so the Lord will lead us? Yeah, let's do that. Dear Heavenly Father, as you have breathed out all Scripture and have made it profitable for teaching and reproof and the correction and for our training in righteousness, we pray that as our time today is spent in your word, that it would do all of these things for which you have sent it, that we may be competent and that we would be equipped for all the good works which you have established for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we look at today's text, and I think you said this well, and it's something that we should probably reflect, and I encourage our listeners to think about this, is how does what Josiah is dealing with, how does when what he has to address, how does that relate to today? And that's a question that Pastor uh, Sandino, we and I have talked about before this program because it is such a wonderful chapter to read, not one that you fall onto or you tell people, hey, that's my favorite chapter of Holy Scripture. <laughs> it's definitely not that. However, I would say it could be because there's so many powerful uh, applicable situations here that relate to us and obviously points us to Christ. So, Pastor, as we come to chapter 23, what are some background or thematic thoughts you have that will help us out? Well, you know, I don't know that anybody's going to say it's their favorite chapter, but they might. Um, but it would certainly, I would say, be a Lutheran chapter. Yes. It's something that Lutherans should identify with, and I think we'll look at that and how reformations happen and, and uh, maybe some past reformations in the church. Um, I think we should see God's mercy. Um, you know, we can talk about uh, God's will. We talk about his proper and his alien will. But God's mercy does um, uh, predominate, if you will, for Josiah. And we see that promise given that he um, will not be in his office or in the world, if you will, when Judah does fall. Um, and because Assyria is coming in a couple of uh, generations and, um, and then the power of God's word and, and the way it reforms uh, the heart and how that reformed heart then does live out in the world. So I guess maybe three main themes there. Yeah, that, you know, and I have to write that down. Second Kings chapter 23 the Lutheran chapter. <laughs> I think I ought to put that on there. Probably won't go in the ESV Bible anytime soon. But you're exactly right. It focuses on God's mercy, and it focuses on not a new word or a new reality, but reforming God's people to be what they should have been, I think is how um, how I would try to describe that to people. You said that so well to remind us of how God's word does work and also the breaking down of, of, of um, uh, what do you call it, of, of idols that are very prominent throughout, and he does that so beautifully. Now, one thing that I want to get your thoughts on a little bit, Pastor Bredesen and I talked on Friday a lot about they, the high priest, uh, 
uh, Hilkiah all of a sudden finds a book of the law. And it seems like everyone's like, wow, this is great. But it was sitting there in the temple whole, the whole time. Any thoughts on that? That is interesting. Um, as we read through here, though, we're going to find that there was so much else going on within the temple courts uh, and within the temple at proper inside the building of false worships and other idols and the vessels that were being used. Um, I guess it's a way where, you know, it got put on the shelf mm. and it just sat there. And, uh, and the practices as they, they developed new things and all of these other things encroached, you know, God's word kind of got pushed to the side and it didn't take long and it was just forgotten that it was there. It's, it's just like going into grandpa and grandma's attic, all those things that have been there for 60 years and people have forgotten that they are there. And, um, and I guess you could say in many ways, you know, I look at my own context here in Maine, where people might consider themselves Christian, but where God's word itself had kind of been pushed to the back. And what they cling to for faith is what maybe they, they read in their favorite magazine or they watch on their television program, and, and that forms and shapes their faith. And uh, they may not recognize that they're missing out on something. You know, one thing that I've realized as I look to congregations, I wasn't always in the LCMS. So I'm originally from Minnesota, yes. and I grew up uh, initially in an ALC congregation. Mm. But the way I would describe it, the people that sit in the pew, they desire to be faithful. Mm. And they listen to the man that proclaims God's word to them, and they try to obey. And if that man proclaiming the word is speaking something false, they may not necessarily know about it, but they strive after it thinking that they're being faithful. Um, a warning, you might say, to the preachers that what they proclaim actually is the truth. And that is, that is so true. And uh, as a side note, I, I want to play a little game of the six degrees to Minnesota. Like it seems like everyone, it kind of like the old six degrees of <laughs> Kevin Bacon, six degrees of Minnesota, and you're you're a you're a first degree. You're a, you're first degree Minnesotan. This is wonderful. Um, but here's here's what I love of what you had to say. First of all, that people who are sitting in the pews are the saints who want to hear and be fed with the word of God. And they're going to assume that it's true what this pastor is preaching. And it's always an encouragement for us uh, to, to you, our listeners as well, is to, to faithfully listen to those words, not to be a, a jerk if it doesn't sound right or something, but to be faithful. Does this line up with the word of God? And also a high calling to the preachers that when we preach to make sure it lines up with scripture, not my own opinion. And that goes into Josiah's reforms. And maybe we need a little reform in our own lives, in our own churches. And that's what we will focus our attention on today. So, uh, Pastor, anything else before we begin? No, I think that's pretty good. All right, here we go. (laughs) So we're ready. Uh, Once again, to our readers, we are reading from the uh, English Standard Version, 2 Kings chapter twenty. 2 Kings chapter 23. We'll read the first three verses. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king Josiah went up to the house of Yahweh, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of Yahweh. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before Yahweh to walk after Yahweh and keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book. And all the people joined in the covenant. So, Pastor, what do you, what what did you find? In I mean, this is a great beginning of this chapter. It sounds like it's just going to just work out great. He hears the word of God. They they make a covenant, move forward. What did you find in these verses? Yeah, well, I mean, in some ways, when we talk like a reformation, it's this recapitulation. It's almost this starting over. I mean, as you read that, it should be reminiscent if you start thinking back to Deuteronomy and Moses. Where they, yes. he read the word to the people, and they said, "Yes, we will do all these things." 
and 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 it's really kind of a bookend here in this chapter as well. Um, and we see that um, I'm looking here at the the pillar is a kind of an interesting thing, but he stood um, at the opening of the temple and he read to the people, much like we would say a pastor stands in the pulpit and proclaims the word today. Mm-hmm. It was the place that the king would customarily stand and address the people. Um, and, uh, and so it was the place for him to make the covenant. So they renew, if you will, the covenant that they had broken, not the covenant that God broke because God was faithful to his covenant throughout, but they now recognize that, Hey, we have not been living according to this covenant. And, and they, as one voice, if you will, renew this. Uh, I also think it's interesting to note here that, um, that Josiah did this with all of his heart and his soul. And, uh, and we'll see that come up again at the end of the chapter as well, that, that here it's, it should remind us a little bit when Jesus speaks of the greatest commandment, when we think about the small catechism in the first commandment, that, that we are to love the Lord God with all of our heart and our soul, um, and then our mind and our strength as well. And that is, it's very helpful to look at some of the dynamics of Josiah, not just that he preached, but where he preached. So people, when he stood up, people knew that he was going to be saying something important. At the same time, you know, that's what happens when you hear a sermon. He stand, a pastor stands in the pulpit. He's to preach the word of God. And Josiah, um, unlike many of his predecessors, are one that when they stood up and started speaking, they were worried about the high places. They're worried about their job. They're worried about all these things. And here he obviously is very much so in his heart and all his soul, which goes to the great commandment, preaching this, teaching this, and taking this very serious. And that is what makes him distinctive of other kings. Almost it seems like above David at times even talks that way here. So it definitely is something where Josiah is one of those guys we should be learning about in Sunday school. Should be a figure that we see as a very important one. Any thoughts on on Josiah and, and his actions and what this all means before we move on? Well, on Josiah, I think he's a unique individual. Um, his grandfather was known as one of the worst kings, and his father was not a good king. It's it's interesting that he, having assumed the throne at eight years old, turns out to be a man that strives after the Lord. And then when he hears the word, when he finds out the the, the covenant has been found, and he and he hears that read to him, it does it does enliven him. It changes his heart about all things. Where prior he thought he was doing things right. Now he recognizes that things must change. And that's why as we move forward, I mean, right here, we're going to hear even more about what he does. It's good for us to remember, once again, as you said, what happens in Maine is that you, people might be doing some godly things, but part of it is they haven't heard these words, so it takes them a while to really sink into their hearts and, okay, now what do I do? And the same thing for all of us is if we go by our 8-year-old self, if we put Josiah in this, and then look at as we age, like, well, if I would have heard that at that stage, who knows what I would have done, or I wish I would have heard this, that we all have to be patient. And that's one of the beauties of First Second Kings. This is at the very end of the Kings, and it, there's so much patience by the Lord as he moves forward. So I want to think about that, too, is how patient the Lord is as we hear about the rest of his reforms and also what that means for us. And I'd love to hear your words after we read this, Pastor. So as we hear verses 4 through 14, we will read. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest and the priest of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out the temple of the Lord, all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priest whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burn incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of Yahweh outside Jerusalem to the brook of Kidron and burned it at the brook of Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. 
And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of Yahweh, where the woman wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance and the gates of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on the ones left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of Yahweh in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth, which Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses of the king of Judah that had dedicated to the son at the entrance of the house of Yahweh by the chamber of Nathan Melech and the chamberlain which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots with the sun with fire and the altars of the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, the altars that Manasseh had made in two courts of the house of the Yahweh. He pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon the king of Israel had built for the Ashereth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and filled their places with the bones of men. A lot happens here, a lot of destruction, a lot of burning, <laughs> and everything else in between. How would, you, how would you pull this all back together, these verses? Yeah, well, I, I would think it was interesting that there were so many other gods that the uh, Israelites had adopted, that Judah had set up and, and, and worshipped right alongside of Yahweh. Um, and so we see here a very syncretistic society, as we would describe it, where they viewed one God just as equal as the other God and even equal to Yahweh. Um, very um, like our society today where people speak that, hey, all things lead to God, and, um, and it doesn't matter which path you take. Um, well, Josiah learned that it does matter, and he tries to clean house literally as he cleans Yahweh's house, and he gets rid of all of the false uh, worship items, takes them out of the city, burns them, crushes them, destroys them, um, there's probably a couple of things in here that we should point out. Um, it's interesting in, the, in verse five, he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained. You'll, uh, hopefully all the listeners recall that God has the one who has ordained the priests, the Levites. Uh, so there's this Levitical priesthood and God has established how they shall serve. Um, so Josiah's predecessors had decided, hey, we're going to ordain in our own manner and do the things that we want. And they establish these priests. It's a Hebrew word that's different um, from the normal Hebrew word that would be used for reference to God's priests. And so this one here is specifically to those that had served the idols. And so he deposes them as he destroys all of the, uh, um, the idols themselves and all of the vessels and all of the things used in worship. Um, he does a couple of things that we were gonna, we would probably think are odd. You know, he 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 crushes up the bones and spreads them on on top of things to defile them. Um, in verse six, it says the common people. Uh, a, a literal translation would be sons of the people, mm -hmm. and the way I would read that is that he's he's looking at these in particular as. Um, not sons of Yahweh, in other words, not people of the covenant, but, but those who had sold themselves uh, into this idolatrous slavery. And, and he, he spreads it on their graves. And, and so their graves are now defiled rather than being considered a consecrated place. And he does this from Geba to Beersheba, Geba being all the way to the north, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> all the way to the north in Judah, and Beersheba being the southernmost city. So he does it throughout his entire kingdom. Hmm. Um, when we talk about high places, we should recognize that many times high places are set up 
um, simply as local places to worship Yahweh, to worship God. Um, they become uh, syncretistic after a while when other things are incorporated in there. And sometimes high places are just set up for the bales or whatever. But sometimes the people think they're being faithful, but they're really just kind of being what I might say is lazy. Mm. They don't want to go all the way to Jerusalem to worship God. So they'll set up a high place near them. Initially, I would say the high places were always mountaintops, but they just became places that were set aside by people that this is where I'm going to do my worship. And, um, and that was not permitted by God. Um, it, it, worship was to be done in Jerusalem. And, um, and so these high places um, cover all of that territory, if you will. It could be to Molech, it could be to Baal, it could be even a high place that was reserved for Yahweh, where, where Yahweh had not chosen to place his name. Um, and then in uh, verse 9, we get the priests uh, of the high places who did not come to the altar of the Lord. Uh, it's a difficult reading in some ways, trying to understand what, he, what is going on here. But I would say that what happens is Joash is decommissioning these Levitical priests. They had defiled themselves like a priest. If he touches a dead body, cannot serve at the temple. These priests had... had um, defiled themselves in, in worship to other gods. And so Josiah doesn't remove their status, if you will, as Levites, but he does no longer put them in the rotation or does not allow them to be in the rotation at serving at Yahweh's temple. Much like uh, a priest who had a deformed leg or something would no longer, would not be allowed to serve at the altar. So God had made those restrictions that, that those that were deemed in a, in a fashion unclean would not come to Jerusalem and serve at the altar. And so they were not allowed to serve at the altar, but that didn't mean that they were not Jews or not Israelites. They ate unleavened bread, so they did celebrate the feast along with their brothers in the homes where they were. Um, it mentions the Kidron, which if we picture Jerusalem is just east of Jerusalem, you have the Kidron Valley and, and then those, those fields of the Kidron, um, all south of uh, the Mount of Olives area. Mm-hmm. And Pastor, as and, we... Uh, oh, keep going. You have another point? Well, I was going to say, I don't know if we want to talk about all the gods, but uh, in many ways, they're, they're just, they are uh, gods of a particular people. Mm. Um, each different people, you know, name their God differently. And it's interesting because most of these gods here, whether Moab or, or Milcom or Chemosh or Baal, they, they all are viewed similarly, but just given different, different names by the, the people. And this is why we have to take our break here soon. This is why it really is a great insight from you that you had the book of the law that they dusted off out, out from the temple and the more you read about all that he needed to destroy, it's no wonder. Male, male, pros, male cult prostitutes in the house of the Lord, it's no wonder they weren't reading from this book. They were so busy trying to upkeep everything else and to keep everything going and trying to keep everyone happy that they didn't focus on the main thing. But right now, we need to take our break. We are studying 2 Kings chapter 23 with Pastor Tim Sandino, and we'll be right back. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org.
And welcome back. We are studying 2 Kings chapter 23 with Pastor Tim Sandino from Redeemer Lutheran Church in Gorham, Maine. And Pastor, you really have set the tone for us today by emphasizing the need for them to destroy the idols. And, and for us, it's a little bit harder for us to understand uh, because we don't, in most churches, at least churches I've been part of, you don't have multiple gods sitting around. Um, you don't, at least as far as, as far as I've seen in Lutheran church, Missouri Synod Lutheran congregations, but it, it can be applicable for us today. And Pastor, you've said much about Maine and the ministry you're part of. To this point, how can this relate to us as we read these first 14 verses? So, I mean, idolatry, we might say, is the chief of sins, um, where we put something before God. Um, and I think if we examine ourselves rightly, we should all recognize that there is something that draws us away from true worship of God. It might be worship of self. It might be worship of things. It might be worship of other people. Um, and and we should examine in our lives uh, maybe how we synchronize our superstitions or our thoughts in such ways that they obscure God's word, that they, that they um, block out the truth that God puts forward in his word, um, where our loyalties might be misguided or laid in the wrong place, and thus we're, we're not looking at God any longer for all that is good, but we're trusting in something else. And, um, you know, without being specific, you know, it, it runs the gamut in our world. Whatever would uh, detract us from that true worship of God in heart and soul, as Josiah did turn, uh, then we should recognize that as, as something idolatrous or at least approaching it. And this is something, hopefully... yeah, something of which we need to repent as well. Absolutely. And this is where, and I don't think I'll, quote John Calvin very often in this program, but he talked about the, how the human heart is an idol factory, which points us to that first commandment reality that if it isn't that idol, we tend to then create another idol, which is something that we see here today, that there are so many idols laid up there. How do you even begin destroying them, getting rid of them? I like how he, he destroyed them and put them outside the temple, outside of Jerusalem, to kind of symbolize the need to not just destroy it, but get rid of all the remnants away from this, um, to take it all away, because there are so many gods that always come before us. And it it really comes down to this, like you said so well. It's a first commandment issue. What do I fear, love, and trust in God? Um, I trust in more than God himself, which we don't have to go very far to repent and look back to the Lord. Pastor, we are going to move on here to Bethel and the altar and what that means, but anything else in these first 14 verses? No, I think that's enough for now. All right, so let's move on, 15 through 20. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of Yahweh, and the man of God proclaimed, who had predicted these things. Then he said, What is the monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, Is it the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar of Bethel? And he said, Let him be. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone, and the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines, all the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests and the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. And then he returned to Jerusalem. So, Pastor, I find this to be a very important event in the history of First and Second Kings. Because in First Kings chapter 12 is when the kingdom was split 
and Jeroboam created altars at Bethel and in Dan. And these altars were part laziness, and you said this so well before, because they didn't want to go all the way to Jerusalem. You know, it's kind of like people who live in town don't want to go all the way across town for worship or something. You know, it's kind of that. It started as, well, you know, maybe we can make it more convenient, and then eventually led to just altars that were not at all to the Lord Yahweh whatsoever. So now that's really kind of the place that throughout First Second Kings that like that always stays. Like they get rid of a ton of other idols, but that one seems to always stay. And here, this seems to be a very prominent moment for the people of Israel, the people of Judah, because now they've destroyed what they never wanted to before. Other thoughts you have on these verses? Yeah, I do think that's interesting. Um, so this altar has stood in Bethel for some 300 years or so since Jeroboam was king. And um, it, it certainly imagine that influencing your faith for 300 years. Um, certainly uh, this is a shock to the people, I would say. Um, but Josiah sees it as a necessary thing, for God never establishes that altars shall be built, even though the kingdom's divided. He doesn't allow for a, a place of worship in the northern kingdom. And, and that's one of the things that we know here is Bethel is not part of Judah. So he has crossed over into Samaria now because Israel itself doesn't exist any longer. Um, and into an area that is not really under his reign. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does this and he goes throughout the cities of, of what we would say is the northern kingdom, that of Israel. And he takes down the high places and he destroys the idols. Um, and uh, I don't know by what authority he does this. If you know, as far as temporal authorities, uh, if the Assyrian king, who was their vassal leader up until now, or uh, you know, uh, if it's Babylon at this time that gives him permission, um, or if he just does it out of the authority that he has under God's word, mm. which is probably the way that I would go with this that he, he sees this as a mandate to set right, even though the Northern Kingdom doesn't really exist, he goes to reestablish God's word among the Samaritans. Um, a bold move on Josiah's part. Mm. And Pastor, I don't know if you studied this. I find it fascinating and I had to study it more, but this part, when it talks about the man of God, um, let's see here. Uh, is it the tomb of the man of God, verse 17, uh, who came from Judah and predicted these things? This points us to First Kings chapter 13, when Jeroboam has built these in Dan and Bethel, and a man of God confronts him and predicts exactly what happened in our text today. Um, any? Did you study any of that? Yeah. I find it I found it fascinating. Yeah, he actually, yeah, yeah, he actually names Josiah. Yeah, that yeah. this man Josiah will tear down these altars. And so it is interesting. So 300 years later, this prophecy does come to fruition. Um, And it's how God raises people up. So the man of God comes out of Judah and invades, if you will, Jeroboam's territory and comes to Bethel to to proclaim the word against him. And uh, and then the prophet that is in Bethel um, recognizes this. And... um, Neither one of them is given a name in First Kings 13. They're just called the man of God and the prophet of God. And, um, and they end up getting buried together. Um, the man of God ends up getting attacked by a lion, and then the, the prophet later uh, dies and is buried back in the same tomb. Um, but Josiah recognizes the two and, and uh, lets their bones lie, uh, lets them rest peacefully until the day of the resurrection. Um, the, the ones in the tombs, uh, that he, that he, uh, exhumes, if you will, and crushes their bones to defile the place. I would say again, that would probably be best viewed as, uh, a place that was viewed sacred unto the idols. In other words, you know, like we talk about Christian cemeteries or whatever, this was a cemetery to the balls or something like that. And so he uses their defiled bones to defile the place of worship. And, um, but, uh, it is interesting. We see how God's word comes back around into its fulfillment throughout, uh, the history as, as we read through scripture. And it's, that is very, very helpful too, because what, if I hear what you're saying is that they had these cemeteries, if you will, the, and they took these human bones and 
to take the high priest who had been, you know, making sacrifices, leading people in this way, and to take their bones and to lay them on the cemetery, was this a sign and symbol of, of degrading it, of showing that there's nothing happening here, that you have, <laughs> that you've worshipped nothing basically all these years? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. And then, then it deters anybody going forward to ever use those places again. Ah, it's been it's been desecrated. Okay, very good. See, that's part. Yeah. I never, never, I yeah. didn't really think much about that, and that's very helpful because it's kind of weird. Because in our world, we have you know someone cremates somebody and then they they throw them out on like a mountaintop or in a, a lake when they go fishing or something. It's seen as a kind of a making it making that area more meaningful or something. But this was a, a degrading reality for people in those days um, and a reality of showing yeah, there is yeah, one. That's how I would read it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And then I like how it ends in verse 20, and then he returned to Jerusalem. I mean, it's just kind of a simple, yeah. and then he was done. He went back home. <laughs> that was, that was well, I think there's something, there's something in that, though, too. Yeah, He led these reforms. He didn't just dictate and say, hey, go uh, do these things. He was at the forefront, if you will, leading the armies, you know, not they weren't fighting in this case, but, you know, he's leading the church. I'll put it that way in bringing the reform throughout the land, uh, the promised land. And uh, he didn't just leave it to somebody else, but he was there at the forefront. So, Pastor, as we get to the next portion, it comes back to that the reality of worship. And to this point, now he gets to the point where he's able to kind of clear the way that, and this is important for all of us, how can we make sure that when we do gather for worship, we're able to focus our attention? So he's broken down all these idols. Uh, he's taken away the male prostitutes. Uh, he's even gone after these other, um, outside of his jurisdiction, as you said so well, um, he's destroyed those. And now he goes back to Jerusalem and he institutes something that I found interesting because I never would have thought this ever would have been lost among God's people. But of course, if they didn't even have the book of the law, how could they keep, quote, the Passover? So I want to read now verses 21 through 27. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to Yahweh your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judge Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Yahweh in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the Medians and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Helkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there were no There were no king like him who turned to the Yahweh with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did anyone arise after him. Still, the Yahweh did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because all their provocations with the Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight. As I have removed Israel, and I will cast off the city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, in the house of which I said, My name shall be there. So Josiah restores the Passover, and I found this to be a very fascinating um, restoration, something I never would have thought had been lost. What are your thoughts on him restoring the Passover? Well, I think it strikes me like it did you that. You know, when I would teach in the past, I would say, you know, the Passover was celebrated for, you know, these 1500 years when Jesus celebrates the Passover. But obviously there was a time when the people forgot about it. Um, I guess you could, if you think about our church, you know, we've we've entered this 20th century that we're past now. And um, we took the corpus off the cross in many churches and we had empty crosses and I've run into people. I actually ran into a man one time that told me, yes, we're the ones without Jesus on the cross. And that was his identifying factor as an LCMS Lutheran. Mm. And, um, and it's, so the things that are lost for a generation are oftentimes just completely forgotten. And, and we can see that, Hey, you know, Passover is kind of inconvenient this year because I got this vacation planned and, um, Next thing you know, I haven't celebrated the Passover in five years, and my children don't know what it is. 
even could just be Sunday morning. Oh, I'm kind of busy this Sunday. And before you know it, it's a, a seven Sundays or whatever, you know. And, uh, and, and then this is how children grow up, not knowing, if you will, what the scriptures say because they never hear it. And you also hear this. Uh, and he has, it says again that he put away the mediums and the necromancers and the idols and abominations, all that were in Judah and Jerusalem. There's that reality, too, that I was thinking about this, that they basically had gotten to the point where all these different groups were using the temple, that they, okay, you know, the Passover has been taken, you know, they, they reserved that place a year ago, and therefore the Passover is already taken up at the temple. You know, that kind of, it gotten so busy and so much going on that it was, it was really, I don't think anybody intentionally got rid of it per se. It just kind of happened. And this happens to our own lives. Can you, any thoughts on how that, how you described it so well, is so easy to happen to us in our world as well? Yeah, so like in verse 24, when he talks about the mediums, necromancers, and so forth, and these are items that he haven't mentioned earlier in the chapter. and But it is a kind of a summation of all of the things that he had done. But now, rather than being corporately Israel, if you will, or corporately Judah, that which happens upon the Temple Mount, this pertains, if you will, to the individual piety of the, of the people. You know, so if I want to know what's going on, do I go see a medium that will talk to a spirit? Do I go see a necromancer that will talk to somebody that's dead? Do I worship the, the gods that I set up on my mantelpiece, right? And so this now hits home. The reforms were not just at the temple or at the high places. It was in the homes of the people themselves as well. Um, but it does not say exactly that the people had a heart after God, like Josiah had a heart after God. Mm. And so we see that God does not relent um, of his um, promise, if you will, to destroy Judah or to take Judah into exile, as we will see in a couple of generations. And, um, and so it's kind of hard to say here, we were talking about the mercy of God at the beginning. And, uh, but this is where we see God's mercy for Josiah. Because he had promised Josiah that this would not happen on his watch. It would not happen during his reign. That because of his faithfulness, you know, God relents, if you will, and shows mercy during his lifetime. And I find that interesting thought, too, is just because Josiah was faithful, it doesn't mean the people were. And I, that, once again, that points us to that, that tension we live in where we will kind of look around and try to look for fruit and say, wow, okay, those people believe, therefore that, that pastor or whoever must be really good. Or if people aren't necessarily following or they're sinning in ways that we wouldn't want people to sin in, then therefore that pastor is not being faithful. And I think you said it so well as far as the God is merciful Josiah, but it doesn't mean that their hearts have been turned. And I'm trying to think of how that how that relates to today. I mentioned a few things, but any other thoughts on that? Well, have you talked about typology in previous uh, Bible it's, studies? It's been a while, so go for it. Yeah. So if we look at Josiah as being a, a small example of Jesus in the Old Testament, we see how his faithfulness brings salvation to the nation of Judah, even Israel, Samaria, at least for a time. And, and if we see that in Josiah, we can see then a reflection of the great faithfulness in our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is because of his faithfulness that we have a reprieve, not just for a couple of generations, but for an eternity. That in him, God's salvation, his mercy, is reflected upon us or is, is shown upon us such that we receive an eternal benefit. Um, and, and I think if we can learn to read the scriptures, you know, and, and see these reflections of Christ in men like Josiah in the Old Testament, it enlightens us a little bit and, and broadens our understanding of the New Testament. And, and uh, the fullness, if you will, and the greatness of, of what God has done for us from the beginning of time and before. And this points us to what, what I've been saying uh, 
throughout First and Second Kings is that we put on our Christ goggles as you read this. And when you put on the Christ goggles, understanding the cross and the empty tomb, you're able to see Josiah and his faithfulness and realizing that Jesus, who was faithful, um, that we are able to see a type of Christ, not Christ, we're not, Josiah is not God or something along those lines, but God is continually preparing us for the cross through faithful people in the Old Testament. And so that is, and when you read the Old Testament that way, what a what a glorious and uh, merciful way it is, as you said so well. Uh, Pastor, I want to read the rest of our verses in our chapter, uh, or almost our whole chapter. Any other thoughts before we move on? Um, no, because then we can talk about some of these other things at the end. Awesome. So we will read 28, and actually we will only go to verse 35, and tomorrow we will dig into starting in chapter verse 36. So verse 28. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him. And Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people in the land of Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, and the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that his father had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he might not reign in Jerusalem, and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah, his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoiakim, Jehoiahaz away, and he came to Egypt and died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Now, this is interesting. All of a sudden, Pharaoh shows up again, and Egypt just seems to kind of sneak into the story again. What's happening here, Pastor? Well, there's a, I guess you could say a power shift going on in the Middle East at this time. Um, Israel, Judah, sits in the middle of Mesopotamia, or between Mesopotamia and Egypt. And um, during this time of the kings, there's there's generally this, this shift in power between um well, up until now, the Assyrians and Egypt. Um, the Babylonians are, are rising in power at this point, and the Assyrian Empire itself will cease to be shortly. Um, and so the pharaoh is making a campaign, if you will, up through uh, Assyria, and um, Josiah intervenes. I mean... I don't know exactly why he intervenes. It could be because Judah is a vassal state of Assyria at some point, it, and perhaps is still at this point. And so he is has a sworn allegiance, if you will, um, to the Assyrian king, um, or at least an obligation to help on that side. Otherwise, he's, he'll be viewed as a traitor. And, um, and so perhaps he's meeting... Uh, the Pharaoh Necho at this point because of that, um, you know, Megiddo where he does meet him is all the way up by Nazareth. Mm. So it's an interesting place. He doesn't intercept him down in, in, uh, where we would say Palestine is today. Um, as they make their way up. Um, but you know, I can't speak a whole lot as it intersects the history and what's going on. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the big battle that we would study in our Western civilization that does occur at this time mm. and might be associated even with this. Um, but uh, the name is escaping me at this point. Mm. So as we look at this, how so I don't know if that fits in with your understanding or not. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it, it's very clear that there's a lot of, of uh, powers at B, Assyria, Babylonia, 
Uh, now Egypt, there's a lot to be played upon, which is a time where they all needed to focus their attention on Yahweh as opposed to the strategies and everything else. And here, Josiah, you know, clears, clears the way for this, but then Jehoahaz takes over. Now, Pastor, we have about two and a half minutes left. Uh, how would you pull this all together? Chapter 23 has a lot of moving parts. How would you summarize it and how, how it affects us today? Well, let's go back to our understanding of this as a Lutheran chapter. Yes. Uh, a chapter that describes the reformation of God's people. And, and certain, certainly we can see this mirrored in a way with Martin Luther in the 16th century, how it's God's word that enlightens him and, and allows him to recognize that many of the things that were going on in his day were not right. You know, they, they may have begun sometimes with, with a good intention and, and may have been salutary in some way, but they began to obscure Christ and they had began to obscure the gospel. And so they could not stand. They, they were maybe not always syncretistic, but, but they had introduced these other practices that, that put people's faith in something other than the one true God. Another thing we might look at is in John 2, we have Jesus cleansing the temple. And it's not exactly the same thing. And so this is one of the things about typology. It's not always a, a direct correlation, but sometimes it's just a way in which it reminds us. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem into the temple and he cleanses of the, the money changers and uh, the sellers of animals and so forth. But in John's gospel, um, the the uh, disciples are reminded after his resurrection that it is uh, zeal for your house. Um, that, that as they quote from Psalm 69, that, that comes to their recollection here. And we see that same zeal in Josiah. Um, and then I'll kind of summarize in our modern day, we do see, if you will, small reformations. If I just look at our own church body, we had a battle over the Bible as, as critical views of the scripture uh, arose in the 20th century. And we hit this point where there were a faction within the church that, that did not have Josiah's view, I would say, of what the scriptures are. And so we had a small reform in the 1970s to reestablish the authority of God's word. We've had since then even um, a small battle, if you will, a large battle at times over what's called the worship wars and, the, and what is proper for us to worship. Does God um, lay down specifics in some ways or does his word prohibit in some ways the practices of the church today? I would say COVID has brought in something for us and the idea of virtual ministries. Can we, as a church, simply sit on our couch at home and not get up and go to church and worship with God's people in his house? Can we just adjust our lives in such a way that, like the, Jew, the, the, the Jews in Josiah's day and before, where is it more just convenient for me today because I'm a little bit tired for me just to watch the service on television or on my computer? Questions I'm not going to give answers to, but it, it does pose the question for us. Are we trying to introduce high places? Are we putting things before uh, God in the sense that are we creating um, obstacles or putting obstacles in our lives that prevent us from worshiping as God would have us worship. And uh, I think it's a discussion that would be good for us to have a discussion even that is necessary for us to have, whether in our own congregations on how the ministry is carried out and perhaps as a church as a whole. Pastor Tim Sandino of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Gorham, Maine, helping us to be strengthened by God's word from second Kings chapter 23. Pastor Sandado, thank you again for being our guest. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Pastor Finner. 
Saints of our Lord, it was Josiah that brought a reformation. He didn't use a few nails to put on a door like in Wittenberg, but he crushed the idols. And it's a reminder for us of all the idols that surround us, which is why it points us once again to Josiah being a type of Christ, pointing us to the one true Lord Jesus who was faithful to the end, even to death on a cross for you. This is our hope and this is our strength. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.